I tell all fans and family, we are back at you in March. Uh, this is our first March episode, and March is Women's History Month. And as Becca and I both always say, women's history is American history because Americans, American history is women's history. And so we are coming at you this month with uh, two really interesting women that have affected American history, and I'm excited to talk about them. Uh, first, though, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And together we are... The Rebecca's. Rebecca's. <laughs> Hi, everybody. We are here. We want to, first of all, uh, give a shout out to our amazing patrons. You guys are the best. Uh, we have uh, patron-only episodes that you guys should be getting every month towards the end of the month. Uh, February's episode was uh, about an African-American woman named Belle Costa Green, a librarian. Uh, March's episode is going to be about women's history. Uh, so we've got a bunch of cool patron episodes. And so if you're not a patron, this is a good time to become a patron patron. Uh, we love our patrons very, very much. We also just want to give another shout out to uh, uh, Women's History is, um, we should talk about Women's History every month, ideally. Uh, but this is a time when we set aside a little special uh, effort and time and care to talk about the women who have made this country really great. And to that, I want to acknowledge a group that is very dear to both Becca and my hearts, uh, which is a tour of her own, a women's tour company that leads tours about women's history uh, all throughout the Washington, D.C. area. They are very fantastic and very wonderful. And they talk all about the forgotten and sometimes not so forgotten women uh, in uh, the nation's capital and the women who've made this uh, country really great. So check out a tour of her own. And today we are going to talk about, who are we going to talk about, Becca? A woman named Helen Hamilton Gardner. That's not her only name, but we'll get into that. Um, I want to start this off with an acknowledgement that our two primary episodes this month both deal with women of the same era. They both deal with women from very similar backgrounds. Um, they're not exactly the same socioeconomic status, and we'll talk about that when we talk about uh, Helen Hamilton Gardner and our other woman of this month. But they are both white, uh, upper middle class to wealthy women who are involved in the suffrage movement. So we try not to do that, to not hit you guys with like the same sort of stories in a row. But I think in the case of looking at Women's History Month uh, and looking at this particular woman who I really wanted to talk about, uh, she and our next topic are really uh, interesting because they're sort of two sides of the same coin. They have similarities, but they also have some really interesting differences. And so I'm really um, excited to pair them together. But I think it's important to acknowledge that this is not perhaps our most wide ranging, diverse uh, representation for Women's History Month. I also, as we start, want to shout out one of our favorite historians, I think a historian who's just out there doing incredible work, um, both in her research and writing, but in sort of bringing, I think, history to young people and to connecting with people via social media. And that's Alexis Coe, who wrote You Never Forget Your First, which is a great biography of George Washington. She also has one of my all-time most favorite newsletters, and I'm kind of a bit of a newsletter enthusiast. I will subscribe to anybody's really good newsletter, but Alexis Coe has Study Mary Kill, where she not only shares a lot of her great research and her great knowledge of history, but she often will sort of pass the newsletter off to other really great up-and-coming historians. And through Alexis Coe's newsletter, I was introduced to a woman named Kimberly Hamlin. 
I realized after reading the newsletter that I knew Kimberly Hamlin because two years ago, she'd written an op-ed for the Washington Post all about Women's History Month and about how um, it's a great thing, but also how it's a very frustrating thing because if women do something, it's women's history. And if men do it, it's history. And it's all history, y'all. That's the, that's the point. And so Kimberly Hamlin had written not just this great op-ed, but also a book called Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. And she did a newsletter um, issue about Helen Hamilton Gardner. And the minute I read it, I said, we have to do a podcast on this woman. She is just fantastic. And she's most famous today, if famous is a very a broad word. She's best remembered today for being part of the suffrage movement, but her entire life leading up to her involvement to the suffrage movement is the stuff of like an HBO miniseries. It's absolutely bonkers. So to jump into it, we're going to call her Helen Hamilton Gardner. Her real name is Alice Chenoweth. Uh, you are going to find out later why she changes her name, but she is Alice Chenoweth at birth. We're going to call her Helen Hamilton Gardner because that eventually becomes her legal name. And that's just for sake of clarity. That's what we're going to call her. She's born in Winchester, Virginia, which is not that far from Washington, D.C., so she's kind of born about an hour outside of D.C. in 1853. She's the youngest of six children, so she comes from a pretty big family. Her father, uh, as was often the case in Virginia, will inherit enslaved people. This is a complication because her family, unusually for Virginians in this era, do not support the institution of slavery. They're pretty adamantly opposed to this idea that you could own someone. And so her father, in an act that is going to really raise him and her esteem for the rest of uh, her life, is going to basically manumit them. This is not an easy process. In the 1850s in Virginia, you couldn't just free people. You couldn't just be like, all right, cool. I don't want to be a part of this institution. There were a lot of legal obstacles. Her father sort of fights against every one of them. And then as soon as he's done that, he's like, well, I don't want to live in a state that has these crazy laws. He moves to DC and then Indiana. So he packs up his whole family and he moves. So this is something that she'll really admire about her father. He would later go on and serve in the United States Army in the Civil War and be a scout and guide in Virginia, which as you can imagine, maybe makes him a little unpopular with the Virginians that he had once known. Um, but he kind of is like, oh man, not only am I going to come back, but I'm going to help the, the United States Army win this war in Virginia. And this is going to be a big inspiration for her. She later writes a pretty popular play all inspired by his life. And she always sort of holds herself up to his ideals. She comes up very well-educated for the era. She's an exceptionally bright student, um, but she's got some older sisters and she sort of watches them as she's growing up and she's like, okay, so my sisters are also educated and smart, but they're getting married off into marriages that they have no say in, um, many of which turn out unhappy. Uh, they're going to have difficulties bearing children. Some of uh, her sisters are going to have to birth and then bury children pretty much right away. And Helen's watching this and she's like, yeah, I don't know if this is the life path that I want. So she sort of eschews this idea of a traditional life. She's going to pursue an education and training as a teacher, which is sort of one of the respectable paths for young women in terms of a profession. And she's very good at it. She's quite successful in the education realm. At the age of 21, she is the youngest school principal in the state in Ohio, and she is very well respected as an educator. But then there's a scandal. There's a big scandal. A huge scandal. Um, she, yeah. a lot. It's a lot. She, okay. So she has, she's a, the youngest school principal in the state and she's kind of a big deal and she's 21. 
and she's going to get together with a guy named Charles Selden Smart, who is the Ohio Commissioner of Schools, which is fine. So she meets him through work. Very nice. But yeah, but also he's kind of her supervisor. He oversees. Right. That's what I was going to say. He's kind of her boss. He's also kind of 20 years older than she is and also kind of very much married. So that's not great. So this is a big scandal. She loses her job when the affair becomes public and gets run out of town. And he agrees to run away with her. Like, apparently this is a real thing. They're in love and he runs away. And even they are together for the rest of his life. It is not clear whether they ever get married or not, but they are together. And this is a big deal. And this is going to be really formative. So I want to like pause on this for a second, because what ends up happening is she's going to bear the brunt of all of this scandal. It is well covered in the newspapers. Her name gets printed over and over in association with this. And they're going to say really mean things about her. And it's like the the man in the story is just going to be, I mean, he doesn't skate by. Like, clearly he's got to get a divorce from his wife. And there's, you know, he loses his job and has to leave his family. But, like, she's the one that's vilified. They say mean things about her, not him. And... She really is going to feel that it is not fair that they're not equally vilified for this. That this is like, first of all, obviously, ideally, you'd be able to kind of do what you want. And there's sort of, you know, that too. But also that like, why should it just be her mores that are called into question? And I saw when I read about this, I thought about Madeline Pollard a lot, which is kind of around the same time period. Madeline Pollard's a little later. But what they're both, both of these women are going to do is challenge the existing sexual mores for women and talks about, you know, sexuality and women's role in society and how they bear the sole responsibility and the sole opprobrium for something that is a joint endeavor. <laughs> like tastefully, in tastefully put. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Madeline Pollard absolutely came to my mind when we were sort of looking at this because that does come a little bit later, but it's the exact same thing. And this thing, this was something that was going on everywhere, right? These acts of infidelity take two people and even beyond that acts of sort of sexual Congress to usually take more than one person. And yet over and over and over when it comes to public consequences, when it comes to the morality and character of someone being uh, sort of challenged or whatever, it's really the women over and over and over again that bear that brunt. And um, this really is going to be a game changer for her. And it's, you know, really fascinating because this affair goes on for two years. It's clearly quite serious. He ultimately does decide to run away with her, but it does. It's, she's the one who's going to have to change her name. She's the one who has to kind of start over. And this is not something that she necessarily wants people to know because she knows how much it's going to influence and shade their opinion of her. Whereas he kind of can just like keep his name and he just moves to a new place. Um, the other part of this that I find fascinating is it's really hard to tell if they get married or not, because so many respectable biographies of her, if you go to Encyclopedia Britannica and any of these like suffrage collections that collect the names of suffrages, they all say they got married. But then if you look at Hamlin's research, it certainly seems to be very likely that they just lived together unwed for 25 years. But it says something that so many historical records feel like they need to say that they got married, right? Because that makes her respectable. I noticed that too. 
Yes. It gives her that respectability idea. Like, it doesn't matter whether he he would have been respectable, whether he was living for 25 years in sin with a woman or whether he married a second time. Like, his respectability doesn't get called into question. But, like, it says something I feel like even today, like in 2022, that when they write a biography of her, she has to be married in order to make her, like, legible and respectable and cool and I feel like that says more about us really than it necessarily does about her but this is going to be really like something she's going to push back about hard uh and she's going to write later and I this is the quote that just jumped out at me so hard about her she this uh quote is a man is valued of men for many things least of which is his chastity a woman is valued of men for few things chief of which is her chastity. And so she's really shining this great spotlight on how women are viewed as they have to be pure and there's not a lot that they contribute, but the only really thing you have of any value is that you go into a marriage uh, without having any knowledge about sex, let alone having had sex. Uh, And so it's this really great like spotlight that she shines on uh, all of this. I think it's really great. I, I don't think of a better quote that actually sums up sort of Victorian era America yes. ideals yep. about womanhood than mm-hmm. this, right? Absolutely. Because truly women were valued for so little, but the most important thing about them was their chastity. And I, I think I think that that speaks br- very, very broadly to an entire era in American history. Uh, and certainly there are still elements of that that exist all the way through the 20th and 21st century, but it's so ingrained in this Victorian era that this is what matters for women. And so this is really kind of interesting because I do think like she comes from a unique background, this sort of Virginian father who who pushes against slavery, but she also comes from a pretty privileged background, very much white upper middle class. And yet now, because at the age of her, you know, from the years of 20 to 23, she sort of had this big scandal. She now is sort of like, this new different woman and she's starting to have these more sort of progressive and radical ideas about womanhood and about her role in society and then she moves to New York City uh, to kind of put the scandal behind her and in New York she starts really broadening her educational horizons. Um, She is never going to obtain a college degree in her lifetime but she will study at a number of colleges including Columbia where she studies biology. Um, She's going to study and then teach sociology for adult education classes, and she's going to start writing. Her writing career really begins in New York. And early on, she uses various male pseudonyms because she's smart enough to know that as a woman, if you're going to write publicly, the topics that are open to you are exceptionally limited. And she wants to write about science and theology, and she wants to write about um, sociology and psychology. These are new emerging scientific fields, and she knows no one will take her seriously. So she writes as a man for several years before she eventually adopts Helen Hamilton Gardner as sort of her official pen name and then later her legal name. And at this time, uh, there is a man named Robert Ingersoll, who is one of the leading orators of the day, one of the most important sort of figures in public thought. And he is um, a leader in a school of thought known as rationalism. And to put this very broadly, rationalism is sort of the pursuit of scientific truth over religion and superstition, right? 
rational thought. All these new areas of science are really being explored um, in the late 1800s. And so this is where he, he is in. And she greatly admires his writing. She greatly admires his work. And when they meet, the two of them really hit it off. And he sees in her an exceptional mind. And he sees in her a woman who clearly has a unique perspective. And he encourages her to deliver a series of public lectures. And this is going to be the first time that she's going to become a public speaker, which is something she will be for the rest of her life. She will use these lectures to ultimately compile her first book and her essays or her lectures will later may become the basis of her essay collections. And this is the first time she publishes officially under the Helen Hamilton Gardner pen name. And these lectures are on some pretty radical topics. She talks about sex first and foremost. She talks about morality and the double standards that exist for women, but she also talks about Christianity. And this is at a time where, you know, there's a huge boom in the role of Christian institutions and groups in influencing public life and public policy. And she is sort of like, hey, if you look at that Bible, women are not treated so great in there. There's a lot of subjugation of women. And she starts delivering these lectures and writing these essays that are really critical of the Bible, that are really critical of sort of American Christian theology. And this rubs people the wrong way. Super rubs people the wrong way. Like she's talking about how the foundation, one of the foundations of Christianity is the subjugation of women. And that's not, I can see people getting upset about a number of things. Some people probably were like, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, some people are upset that she's criticizing Christianity. Like I can see all of these things. Um, I can this just must have been. She she has uh, she's got some guts. I love it. So she much. really does. And I mean, this eventually leads her down a path to embracing atheism, which in this era is such an, an a radical outside ideal to hold publicly. Certainly, I'm sure in people's own homes and private lives. Atheism has existed for forever, but to hold that as a public opinion as a white upper middle class woman in a public space, that's a really, really bold stance to take because that is going to make you unpopular among a lot of the big organizations for women at the time. Many of the ways that women were able to seek civic engagement was through sort of these proper kind of Christian groups. And if you're eschewing that, you're putting yourself on, on the outside. So it's sort of fascinating because she gets a ton of vitriol. She gets a ton of backlash, but also it raises her esteem among quite a number of important men in the rationalism movement. She is going to become a very popular lecturer and writer on women's issues. She becomes in many ways kind of the go-to person to comment on women's roles. And um, this is going to be her life's work. Um, she's just going to continue to write and lecture. She will go to a place that we have talked about, uh, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition uh, in Chicago. And she will deliver more speeches than any other American woman in that year at that fair. Um, she will be described as being second only to Susan B. Anthony uh, in terms of her public role uh, as a woman, right? As a public woman, she is second only to Susan B. Anthony and notoriety and fame, which is fascinating to me because if you ask the average person today if they've heard of Helen Hamilton Gardner, probably not. Susan B. Anthony, absolutely. Uh, yet they were peers and they were equally well-known in their time. 
And then she, she's going to do it again. She's going to go up against a pretty powerful man, a man by the name of William A. Hammond, who was a surgeon general. He had been a surgeon general for the United States. Uh, this is a guy who like served in the civil war, very well-respected gentleman. And he decides that he's going to investigate the biological argument of whether female brains are equal to the brains of men. And he's going to basically build this thesis that there's a neurological basis for female inferiority. Yes, he does. He finds 19 ways, as it turns out. Why 19? Why not 20 or like 15? I don't know. But he finds 19. Because the science says 19. Science says 19. He claims to have found 19 ways in which women's brains were naturally inferior to men's. And if you're rolling your eyes right now, literally, it's in our notes that you should take an eye roll break. <laughs> I am. Just ridiculous. And this is, this is coming at a time when women are getting more involved in civic life, in institutions of higher education, colleges and universities and things. Women want to become sort of involved in the professions. And this is basically the implications of this is, yeah, you guys, you get you nice gals can try it, but you're not up to it. Like you don't have the the brains that the men's do. And and it's to wrap it in the cloak of respectability. This is not discrimination. This is science. It's science. And it's coming at the very same time when these leading lights are doing the same thing that they're doing to women. They're doing the same thing to African-Americans. Oh, you're inferior in some way. It's not that we're discriminating against you. It's just that you're not built for this. And it's so patronizing. (laughs) And it is shoddy science because... It's terrible. William Hammond's research, quote unquote, into this is so poorly set up. His study is so skewed from the beginning um, where he's going to look at, you know, male brains of sort of typical men and then look at women's brains for literally women who were ill, sick, underdeveloped women from different, not from the United States. So from different parts of the world, totally different biological background. It's a really, really poorly established study, but because of his role as the former Surgeon General, it's just kind of reprinted and reshared in a way that it goes, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. We must accept it as fact. And Helen Hamilton Gardner says, Absolutely not. Nope. She, one of the things that he does is he compares the weight of someone's brain. And men, by and large, biologically weigh more than women do. Like the weight of your brain has nothing to do with your intelligence. It has to do with the size of the person that you are in your head. Like it's not, but, and so that's basically what Helen Hamilton Gardner is going to say. Like that's, you're drawing a conclusion that you have no real basis to draw. And so she's going to work with a neurologist named Edward Spitzka. And there is zero chance I pronounced that right. To refute his these theories, she's going to ultimately publish a paper called Sex in Brain, uh, which is read out to the a convention in 1888, the International Council of Women in Washington, D.C. And she's going to basically like refute all of Surgeon General Hammond's points, go point by point about how this is really shoddy science and it's meant to serve a purpose. Like you're going into this having a result that you want. And so she's going to really become the sort of leading light in terms of refuting all of these really terrible (laughs) 
uh, accusations that Hammond is making. She also is going to write novels too. So she's in the nonfiction and the fiction world. It's very exciting. She writes novels that illustrate the double standards around sexuality and criticize the low age of consent. This is another one of her big issues. The age of consent for a, a girl, not even a woman, a girl was 12. A huge issue for her. Or younger. Or younger in 38 states. That was the age of consent. 12 or younger in 38 states. It's infuriating and gross. And that, that was as of 1890. So even as we're on the dawn of the 20th century. And so she is not by any means the only woman of note in this era that sort of speaks out against this, but she does so really consistently. And she uses her novels in particular to illustrate that this exceptionally low and frankly, just, you know, insane age of consent is absolutely an illustration of the double standards that exist for men uh, and women in this society. And she will really advocate throughout her lifetime against these age of consent laws. In 1901, her partner, Charles Smart, dies because he's significantly older. Uh, And so she remarries a year later or marries for the first time. It is unclear. But she does get married to this next man, Selden Allen Day, a retired army officer from the Civil War and the Spanish-American War. And then they spend the next five years traveling the world, which is what I would like to do. (laughs) Spend the next five years traveling the world. So it is sort of interesting because this is a woman who's had quite a bit of scandal in her life. But by the time she marries Selden Day, she's in her 50s. or pushing right to 50. And this is a chance to kind of cloak herself in some respectability. Yes, she talks about these radical issues. Yes, she is progressive in certain areas, but she still, I think, has a mindset about having a certain level of sort of class respectability that she wants to have. This man is well-respected, well-established, and so that's going to help legitimize her even while she's got these more perhaps uh, scandalous and controversial opinions. Uh, And when she marries him, I do find it interesting that for about five years, she does step away from a little a lot of the work she's been doing. Um, She will travel and enjoy traveling and that experience will be important for her, but she does kind of step back for those first couple of years, which is why a lot of times if Helen Hamilton Gardner does come up at all, nobody really talks about her life until this point, until she's the nice older lady who's married to the nice army guy. Yes, exactly. Until she's got some respectability that they, people can hang their hat on. And it's at this point, sort of after she returns from her honeymoon, that she's going to become really linked with the suffrage movement. By this time, we're at 1907. And so suffrage has been happening for a while. We're now in the second generation of suffragists. So the Elizabeth Cady Stanton's and Susan B. Anthony's Lucretia Mott's, they have all passed away at this point. And so you get the second generation Carrie Chapman Catt, uh, Harriet Stanton Blatch, the uh, women like of that nature who are themselves getting into their 50s and 60s and starting to worry that they will pass away without suffrage happening. So we're getting a push uh, and she, Gardner's going to return to D.C. and um, she is going to get involved in NASA, National American Women's Suffrage Association. There we go. 
I have to say it like five times. You're right. I should note that um, Gardner had become very friendly with Elizabeth Cady Stanton in her lifetime. But despite Stanton's best efforts, she resisted joining any of Stanton's efforts, including joining NASA initially, because they frequently used religious arguments to support women's suffrage. And they aligned with a lot of Christian organizations, including the Women's Christian Temperance Movement. And Helen Hamilton Gardner felt that ultimately it ran counter to a lot of what she truly believed, um, even though, uh, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Stanton was also highly critical of the way in which religion was used to subjugate women. They shared that, that view. But ultimately, Gardner, for a lot of her 20s, 30s, 40s really resists being part of the movement. But by 1907, she's sort of like, okay, I want to be a part of this. Um, she's going to settle in Mount Pleasant, which is where she's going to live for the rest of her life. So um, her home today is uh, apartments in Mount Pleasant, but she lived in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. And she becomes very involved with NASA. She is going to be, I mean, if you go through the NASA archives, I mean, she's just all over the place. She holds a number of different offices and positions. She is very involved in the planning of the 1913 suffrage parade. She very much shares the opinion of the sort of young guns, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, that there needs to be this sort of public demonstration of support for suffrage, that this is going to be a very smart political uh, tactic and technique. She's essentially Alice Paul's right-hand woman. She is going to be on the ground, really making this event logistically happen. She's pivotal in acquiring permissions, permits, to march and gather. She's going to negotiate with the federal government. She's going to negotiate with city leaders to make sure that they can use these spaces. She's also the press secretary for the event, which makes sense. She's got that strong oratory and writing background. Um, so she's like really, really involved with the parade and she's close to Alice Paul. And then the parade happens and Alice Paul's not very happy about how NASA wants to handle things after the, the parade. Um, neither is Lucy Burns. And there starts to be this generational split that we've talked about in previous episodes, where ultimately um, a lot of these younger suffragists are going to go and form a new organization, the National Women's Party, and they're going to split off from NASA. Helen Hamilton Gardner is really, really upset by this. She does not support a lot of their, their move, and she doesn't think it's wise to split into two factions. I find it really interesting that she she's at such an interesting spot in the women's movement because she really like she kind of her and Carrie Chapman Cat were quite close and she does not approve of Carrie Chapman Cat's very like go along to get along like kind of letter writing campaign and and the sort of uh, she's she's very much in the Alice Paul mode that we need to push and and put make be public about this or nothing's ever going to get done but at the same time when she's not frustrated enough to leave NASA so when Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are going to form a different organization she's upset by that and wants to stick with what is already uh happening so it's a, she's a really sits at a really interesting intersection of a lot of what's going on in the women's movement at this point yeah, and she's, you know, she is sort of, I think, right kind of in between, if there's this sort of spectrum, she's right between Carrie Chapman Cat and Alice Paul. She doesn't think that Chapman Cat's doing enough, but she worries that Alice Paul and what she's proposing sort of modeled after these British um, suffragettes, that there's going to be, that that's going to go too far, right? Helen Hamilton Gardner, in her life, having had to navigate around, I think, so much of, of a man's opinion of her recognizes that you can go too far. And so she does stay behind at NASA. She has to basically reorganize the entire congressional committee because everybody's going to resign. A lot of the congressional committee resigns. 
to follow Alice Paul, the National Women's Party. So all of a sudden, Helen Hamilton Gardner is going to become this really key figure in NASA because she is one of the more radical members who stuck around. But she's also one who really has a political acumen that a lot of these other women do not. And this is going to become most evident in the 1916-1917 era because she's going to be named the chief liaison from NASA to the Woodrow Wilson administration. And she is named this because she is going to reach out to Woodrow Wilson. 1916, she had been wintering in California. We should all be so lucky. And she comes back to D.C. and they give her a big grand welcome home, a fancy luncheon at the University Club. And at the University Club, this is where she learns that the National Women's Party has been using some intense new tactics for the fight. They're out protesting outside the White House. They're holding banners. They are criticizing Woodrow Wilson publicly, and they are getting arrested. She is pretty shocked at these techniques. This does not align with what she thinks is the right way to do this. And I just want to put this out as a caveat. There's really probably no right way to fight for change, but we have these arguments all the time, right? What's the right way to protest? What's the right way to exercise your First Amendment rights? And so she doesn't really know Woodrow Wilson. She kind of knows a few people in his admin, and she just decides, you know what, I'm going to make him know me. And she writes a letter to his like personal, like to Woodrow Wilson through his personal secretary. She basically lays out all of her credentials. My husband's a Civil War veteran. Oh, by the way, I'm from Virginia. You're from Virginia, Woodrow Wilson. Oh, we got that in common. She's going to lay out all the senators and congressmen she knows. And then she basically sets out to make herself the respectable face of the suffrage movement. And she is going to write him and his secretary this. No one more sincerely regrets deprecates and opposes the heckling of the president than the real suffragists of America who have carried the woman's suffrage banner with dignity and good sense from the early days to the splendid showing of complete triumph in 12 states and its promise of very early success in several others. So she very much lays out, they're not a part of us. They don't really represent this movement we do. Look at all the work we've been doing state by state. No, by the way, it's so popular in these states. This is the implication. It's so popular in these states, you might as well just make it a federal amendment because we're like halfway there already. And she lays out kind of all of her political bona fides, but she says, we are not a part of this. They don't speak for us. And this letter ends up being pivotal. It like opens a door to NASA connecting more strongly with Woodrow Wilson, specifically Helen Hamilton Gardner, becoming very close to Woodrow Wilson. It also is going to be used as a tool for NASA. They're going to have it entered into the congressional record as a way to help congressmen distinguish between the quote unquote good suffragists at NASA and the rabble rousers and the, and the, and the problem at NWP. It is something I feel so conflicted about, right? Oh my gosh. I was just going to say, I feel like there's so, there's such a parallel to modern movements with this, that like movements split apart because you disagree about the best way to affect change. This is something we see all the time. How do we best get a spotlight on our issues? Do we work within the system or do we try to like work around the system? There's such a great like, you know, and people want to be respectable and appeal to the parties in power. And then other people say, no, what have they done for us lately? And it's just such a great illustration of 
first of all, how nothing changes, that progressive politics is always been fractured. It will always be fractured because they're doing something from without and trying to push their way in. Um, and it also like the women's movement has never been a monolith ever. And it never will be a monolith. No, we're never going to all agree on the best way to go about something. And so I feel like it's just so an interesting moment. And it gives Wilson, I feel, a way to be like, oh, these are the respectable suffragists. They're being polite and writing me nice letters. So I can support that. These women who are like protesting in front of my house, eh, that's a little too much. And so I feel like it's just such a, it's savvy, but it's also like, I can have put myself in Alice Paul's shoes and have been pissed off. You imagine the Furious, flames right? like coming out of her head. Like what? It just is. Furious. Yes. And, and I, I love Alice Paul. Yes. We've talked about Alice Paul on this podcast, right? I have such a respect for the National Women's Party. But also, you have to acknowledge that Helen Hamilton Gardner, like you said, it's so savvy because it is giving Woodrow Wilson an in that he can cloak himself in and say, these are nice women. They're married, upper middle class to upper class women. This woman's from Virginia. They're white women, right? And they're not, they're not standing outside doing this unseemly public demonstration, they are simply going about things the way that you should, the way that you should, all of this cloaked in a lot of air quotes. And it really does work though. These, this letter and the subsequent letters that she will write him really give him a chance to get into connecting with the suffrage movement. Before he agrees to meet with NASA for the first time at the White House, he gets reassurance from his secretary that the NASA group is the one that Helen Hamilton Gardner is a part of. And those letters, those memos are going to be key to that. This also I think is a really good illustration of how disconnected Woodrow Wilson really was from the suffrage movement through his first administration um, or those first three years of his first term because he's been in office. These women have been out there and he can't tell the difference between NASA and the, the NWP. Like he doesn't even know who the important leaders are. And I just like to put that out there because Wilson really like, he just disconnects from this for as long as he can and up to the point that it becomes, you know, politically important to him, then he's like interested. I I'm well known for my dislike of Wilson, so I'm just going to say uh, Yeah, as we, as we have talked about Wilson many times. Um, Gardner is basically going to, like, worm her way in from this point on. The first time NASA goes to meet with Wilson, of course, Carrie Chapman Cat comes. Helen Hamilton Gardner insists she comes because she really wrote the letter that made that introduction. And she is just going to, like, play this so exceptionally well. She befriends Wilson by bonding over their shared kind of heritage and their similar views on things. I think it's important to note that while she and her family certainly um, oppose the institution of slavery, she holds, I think, the views of many white women of this era that it's more important for white women to get the vote than to guarantee that the vote is going to be open to all you know, she's definitely going to play the sort of racial part of this to Woodrow Wilson. She also worms in with his wife. She worms in with his most important aides. She is going to get to know them, their their uh, wives, their children. Um, she's really going to understand lobbying in a way that not a lot of other, I think, key members of the women's movement understood political lobbying of this era. Um, she is a daily presence at the White House. And she's smart about it. She doesn't just show up every day to heckle him or hector him about suffrage. She comes to talk about, you know, 
the, the, the looming war in Europe and she comes to talk about other things, but she's just always there and becomes kind of this ear that he can rely on to talk through these issues. If you look at the archives of the papers of Woodrow Wilson, there are only two women that come up more frequently in his presidential archive, and those are his two wives. So the next most frequent woman to visit, to write, to communicate with Wilson is Helen Hamilton Gardner. And he had three daughters, by the way. Like, so he, she's like above the kids. She's kind of that. And I feel like this is so savvy. And it just sort of proves that, like, if you want to get something done, all approaches are valid. Just keep going, keep pushing, keep doing your thing. And I feel like that's the sort of big takeaway here. Alice Paul and the Lucy Burns are doing their thing, and that's really important. And Carrie Chapman Catt and Helen Hamilton Gardner are doing their thing, and it's really important. I feel like it all works. Just throw it all against the wall and see what happens. It's very easy, I think, to point to one thing that that helps make the 19th Amendment happen. And it's easy to go, well, it, it's the National Women's Party or, or it's it's Helen Hamilton Gardner. It's, it's, it's all of it. All of this has to be happening at the same time. And even though they're not coordinating their efforts, the fact that this is all happening at once is allowing this confluence of interests to come together and get us where we want to be, which is with removing sort of sex as a barrier to voting. And I think that right now it's much more sort of the the viewpoint of like, well, it's definitely the women protesting outside, but I don't think we can discount the effort that Helen Hamilton Gardner does really behind the scenes. She's not doing this to get her name in the papers. She's not interested in really any sort of public acknowledgement. She is just like, I you catch more flies with honey. You keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. She's like, I'm going to get into the inner circle because that's how I think we can accomplish this. And I think she makes some very important inroads. Uh, she does this not just with Woodrow Wilson. She does this with the Speaker of the House, a guy named Champ Clark, which I think is one of the great political names of all time. And so she is going to be not just at the White House, but really up on Capitol Hill, very engaged in the House and Senate. She uses wit, charm. Uh, she uses kind of a very moderate and agreeable mode of lobbying. It's very subtle. It's very feminine in a very traditional sense. Slow and steady is her perspective, right? She's like, it, we got to chip away at it. She's like, you don't bring these things up to a vote until you know you've got it, but you've got to also make sure you're whipping your vote. She understood how important it was to know if someone was vulnerable in an upcoming election or not, whether they might be persuaded if they could get something out of it. And she really, in particular, is going to understand the importance of Southern Democrats from a political perspective. She is going to know that they're never going to get this through the House and Senate, and it's never going to become a ratified amendment if you can't get Southern support. That's just the way our Constitution has it set up. You have to have that sort of that two thirds. And so she is going to really wear down what was known as the Southern Wall of Opposition to suffrage. And she does this because she shares their backgrounds and she shares many of their not enlightened ideas about race relations. And so it's not an admirable element to her, but it is one that in this circumstance is going to help win Southern Democrats to vote for the 19th Amendment. Mm -hmm. It's also know your enemy too, like know how to approach them in a way that they will respond to. You know, no Woodrow Wilson is not going to respond to people protesting outside his house. That's just not his personality at all. Like that's going to make him more entrenched. Woodrow Wilson likes the thing he likes least in the world is someone telling him that he's wrong. 
that's not going to work for him. And so I feel like her knowledge of how to sort of work the layers of, of power, this is a very savvy DC move. You know, something that happens a lot today is people know where the pressure points are and who's in a vulnerable district and who's got, you know, their third cousin is a suffragist and they kind of feel that they're like aligned with them, but not quite and what their worries are. And so I feel like it's a real savvy approach to getting this through Congress, which is going to, you're going to need to do if you want to get an amendment. And she really understands too, when the United States enters the war, she understands that that's going to change people's perspective about women and their role because women are becoming a vital part of the war effort. And she actually develops an entire lobbying strategy that positions the support for women's suffrage as basically supporting the war and the war effort, right? We have to, you know, if we're going to defend democracy abroad, we have to have democracy here. And we're, we're willing to let women be nurses and let them care uh, for our men and go and work and support the war effort, well, we certainly should empower them with the vote. And so she immediately seizes upon our entry into World War I as a way to sort of give people a cover for supporting women's suffrage and a new way of, of sort of uh, positioning it and presenting it. And this all really just leads up to her in her lifetime feeling like she is the key element to getting Woodrow Wilson on the side of suffrage. She would later boast that she asked Woodrow Wilson for 22 favors and she got 21 of them. And it's true of the 22 things she asked for, which are all these sort of various things, including, of course, a federal amendment. Uh, the only one she didn't get was having Carrie Chapman Catt appointed to sort of an important peace convention because Wilson uh, wrote back and said that that other countries would not accept a woman in such a high role. But otherwise, you know. For good or for bad, or whether you agree with her politics or her way of doing things, she got results. And I think at this point in the movement, like you said, so many of these women saying, is this going to be another generation before we get get this done? At this kind of like key crux point, she's really pushing that kind of boulder over, over the apex. We're like finally getting there. And then finally, yay, the 19th Amendment is approved by Congress. And Gardner plays an absolutely key role in this event. She knows that it's going to pass on the vote. She's done all the work. She's whipped the things. So she's there, of course, when the vote happens. And then she rushes away immediately because she has planned down to every detail the signing because Woodrow Wilson is going to sign this into law. And she has purchased the gold pen that's going to be used. And she has orchestrated who's going to be there and the visual. And so like this is like her crowning glory is really just like, getting Woodrow Wilson to sign this bill. And then a week later, she's like, okay, cool, 19th Amendment's passed Congress. A week later, she writes the Smithsonian Institution. And she says, okay, so now that this is law, you need to put together an exhibit of suffrage materials, and you need to start collecting elements related to this fight. Because now that it's it's enshrined in law, this is American history. She had tried previously to get the Smithsonian to take some suffrage materials and they were like, yeah, no, it's it's a passing fancy. It's like the, the news of the moment. And now she was like, haha, it's a law and you have to take it. And so I love this about her, the fact that she understood that it isn't just about achieving this, this legal win, this sort of win in policy, that if 
the suffrage movement was going to matter. It needed to be a part of the story of America. It needed to be part of the historical record. And so the fact that she immediately goes to the Smithsonian and is like, here's Susan B. Anthony's scarf. Here's her watch. Here's the table from Seneca Falls. Here are documents and papers. You need to have this, I think is really important. She's also really, really petty about it. Because as far as Helen Hamilton Gardner is concerned, the 19th Amendment happens because of her and NASA. The National Women's Party did nothing but hurt the cause. And she maintains that perspective very fervently. And she tells the Smithsonian very clearly that these items belong to NASA. These items are part of NASA's fight and that there should be no credit of any kind to the National Women's Party, which is a lot super petty yeah super petty also false but yes it's also very very false and uh, today that i should give a lot of credit to sony institution obviously today all of their suffrage um exhibits and materials tell a much fuller brighter picture but that first exhibit they followed exactly kind of as she she dictated but the fact that they had an exhibit on suffrage shortly after is a testament to to her lobbying of the smithsonian and then, of course, all her buddy-buddiness with Woodrow Wilson pays off personally for Helen Hamilton Gardner because in 1920, she is appointed to the United States Civil Service Commission. She is the first woman to occupy such an important federal position, and she is, at the time she serves, the highest-ranking woman in the federal government. She oversees almost 700,000 employees across the United States. She is going to hold this position until her death, which is five years later. But for five years, she's a woman in her late 60s, 70s. She is occupying a very key federal role. And so I don't necessarily, I don't believe, in fact, that any of her support of suffrage is simply to elevate herself. But I think it's a testament to how much Woodrow Wilson respected her and how much of a bond the two of them had formed that he was willing to give her such a key actual important government job as opposed to just sort of maybe giving her something that would have been a title only sort of thing. I agree. I think him putting her sort of front and center uh, is a testament to sort of the work that she did and the inroads that she made with him. And Woodrow Wilson wasn't a man that particularly like supported women in the public sphere. So this is a big step for him. Um that's all the nice things I'll say about Wilson. Uh, she's going to hold this position until her death, which is in July of 1925 at the age of 72. She dies in Washington, D.C. Uh, she is going to be eulogized by a bunch of people, including uh, Carrie Chapman Catt, who outlives her. Uh, Carrie Chapman Catt's eulogy is, quote, had she lived in the, in the long ago, she might have been a queen. And as such, fearlessly would she have led her armies, just as great generals have done. Had she lived in the future, she would have stood for whatever was then a question of the time. As it was, she lived in this century, and so she gave herself to what was, during her time, the most controversial of subjects, and that was the so-called emancipation of women. Yeah, Carrie Chapman Catt um, and Helen Hamilton Gardner remain very, very close. She will have sort of a, a wake or memorial in her Mount Pleasant home, and Carrie Chapman Catt 
would write this really extensive eulogy that was delivered there and then um, printed and shared across. It ends with this quote, which I just really love. Uh, Such a character as that of Helen Gardner was like the holy fire, lighting the candles of those less brave, less strong, less intelligent, less truthful, and they in turn lighted those about. And so far do such influences extend that it is impossible to estimate the good which such a man or woman does in the world. She was not a fundamentalist. She was a liberal but always tolerant, always progressive. What she gave to the world, no one may know, but those of us who are privileged to light our candles at her altar do now know that we must carry on. And I just think that's kind of amazing. One, the religious iconography there is sort of ironic, given kind of um, Helen Gardner's personal feelings about all of that. Um, But it also just shows the the immense respect and esteem that Carrie Chapman Catt had for Helen Hamilton Gardner. Uh, Gardner is going to donate her brain to science, which I think is super dope. And I think she does it to be like, I want you to know that my brain is equal to the brain of any other man out there. So if you go to Cornell, they have a brain collection and that is where Gardner's brain is. So if you study um, at Cornell, you can maybe go see her brain. I don't know how that works. Um, She is cremated and then interred at Arlington National Cemetery with Selden Day. Um, So he, of course, is a Civil War veteran and a a high-ranking Army officer, is buried at Arlington. She is interred with her second husband. So uh, among several kind of notable, interesting suffragists that are at Arlington, if Buck is listening, I hope Helen Helen Hamilton Gardner makes it onto your Women of Arlington National Cemetery tour in the future. And then her papers today um, were cataloged at Harvard. As part of their women's rights collection, it's where many of her letters, memos, documents for NASA are stored. However, we don't have a lot of her personal correspondence because before she died, she rewrote her will and she asked to have all of her personal correspondence destroyed. Um, She asked to have quite a number of sort of personal documents destroyed. I think it's because her life was kind of scandalous. And by the time she'd reached this point of holding this federal position, she'd really reinvented herself. I don't think she wanted all the more scandalous aspects out there. So we don't have a great deal of that personal documentation, but a lot of her NASA work is at Harvard. Some of it is in the Library of Congress, um, but most of it is in the Women's Rights Collection. Yeah, I love that she had her um, papers burned. It's always such a sadness for history, but like you just get the sense that that's where the juicy stuff really Yeah, was. I always want to know what's in somebody's papers when yeah, they're burned. Absolutely. Um, and this is so great. I think she's a great sort of undersung hero in the, the suffrage movement. So um, Helen Hamilton Gardner was a lot of fun. When you first proposed this, I was like, I don't know who this person is. And she really seems to be just about everywhere. And she has a lot of progressive causes. And it's I love that she donates her brain. That's, yeah, so great. I really, you know, again, a huge shout out to Alexis Coe and Kimberly Hamblin, who wrote literally the book on Helen Hamilton Gardner and who has written a number of really fantastic essays uh, about her and how she connects at these sort of different points. But this is exactly the kind of topic I love, which is sort of looking at women in American history, not through the prism of a hero or this elevated status, but really looking at them as prickly, complicated human beings. Um, And I love that she's at the crux of this important moment, the suffrage moment, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, but she's coming at it from a perspective that is not naturally something I'd be like, yeah, suck up to Woodrow Wilson, yay. But she also is so effective and efficient and smart and savvy that you have to respect it or you have to acknowledge it. And the fact that by the time she gets to that point in her life, she's already lived all of this incredible 
lifetime is really uh, just fascinating to me. And it's the kind, the kinds of women I like to talk about are women like this, um, because they're not all good. They're not all bad. Um, and they, they find themselves right at these important moments and it's fascinating to see how they react to them. Um, so yeah, somebody please at HBO, I beg you again, this is ripe, ripe for a mini series. Um, everything about her, the way that her life sort of tracks, I just find it super interesting. And speaking of prickly and complicated human beings, come back next time. We're going to talk about a very prickly and very complicated woman uh, in American history, rough contemporary of Helen Hamilton Gardner. I'm very excited. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting after this conversation to sort of flip, talk about the suffrage movement from a different perspective, Mm -hmm. someone who is roughly contemporary, but also I think living at the same moment with these same sort of um, social mores and ideas about women who bucks against some of these traditional ideas of a woman's role. So uh, I'm excited to sort of see these as a, a pair. I know. A we've pair we've teased this out for a while. We have to stop so people can okay. just, the next two weeks, you guys got to just wait and see who we're talking <laughs> about. Uh, thank you very much for coming along with us. As always, please reach out if you have questions or comments or want to propose a topic or something that we've already talked about and intrigued you and you want to know more, give us a shout out. We are at the emails, uh, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We are on the Twitters at tourguidetell. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and we would love to hear from you and what you thought of the episode. So thank you guys very much. Happy Women's History Month, and we will be at you coming back in your ear holes in a couple weeks. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 